And welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so honored and excited to be here with Rachel Bernstein, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, author, podcast host of Indoctrination. And if you watch the recent Stars documentary about the Nixium cults called Seduced, um, you may recognize her. I don't post videos, but <laughs> you may recognize her name. <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you and I can't wait to have our discussion and answer whatever questions you have. Awesome. So before uh, diving into your incredible background, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What's your story? Okay. So um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to school in Boston, then came back got my master's here back in LA at USC and then uh, um, then moved to New York and had two of my three kids in New York, came back to LA. Um, while I was in New York, I uh, was working at a place called the Cult Hotline and Clinic, which was part of Jewish Family Service. Um, I don't know if it's still around, but it was, uh, it was really an, quite an amazing experience also because I put together a speakers bureau for former cult members so they could go around to schools and other places to talk about their experiences. Um, and most importantly, talk to um, psychiatric nurses and other places where a lot of former cult members are misdiagnosed and sent, people think they're psychotic because they're just reiterating what they were taught and what they learned. Uh, and they're given the wrong medication. There is a whole cascade of things that can go wrong after you get out if you don't get the right care. Um, so yes, I'm a mother of three, three humans and two dogs <laughs> and, um, and I'm on the board of a couple of different organizations that deal with free thinking and having an open mind and not having it taken advantage of. Um, and I, yeah, and I just, I love my work and right now with all that's going on in the world, I have never been busier. Yeah, I can imagine. I feel like that's a common theme with um, practitioners that I speak with. But before getting into, you know, your very specialized focus of cults, I guess what um, or how did you become interested in psychology and choose to go into a career of therapy to begin with? Right. So um, initially when I was in Boston and university, I um was studying education and special education, and then went on to learn to do therapy uh, in master's level, uh, and then got my counseling degree. What caused me to be interested in this field at all were a couple of things. One is that I had a sibling who got ensnared in a group, actually in Scientology for a brief time. And uh, it's when I was still young, so it was sort of dinner table conversation about how something like this can happen and how there can be 
uh, really drastic personality shifts um, after the first meeting. And, um, and it was, it's actually a really kind of crazy story that happened, but when, which I can tell you about briefly, but what we did notice was at the time, there weren't resources available. There weren't books to read and it was before the internet. And so we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants, just trying to figure out how to help her and how to help her break free. She eventually did. Um, but through my learning, even in high school of studying this and becoming more aware uh, because of my sibling, mm, I learned about a lot of front groups, a lot of cults that have front organizations uh, with names that sound perfectly legit uh, that are all over the place, but especially on college campuses. So there I was on my college campus. I go to the student union to see like what's going on on campus. And suddenly I see all these groups and they're recruiting. And I think the university has no idea that as soon as people get involved in this group, they are leaving school. They're going to be told that they can't make a commitment to both and if they study for finals, instead of coming to the Bible study, they're making a relationship between getting good grades and having a relationship with God. School had no clue. And, but just to see it in real time was really incredible. Uh, and then I, when I decided to become a therapist, I thought, you know, maybe I need to be the person who we couldn't find yeah. to help my sister. Um, and so I started going to conferences and you know, learning and learning from other people who were starting to do the work. Um, uh, there are very few therapists at the time who were doing this work, still are too few. Um, but the, just the quick, tiny story about really what helped my sister get free was she said that she at the time was having stress. I mean, she was a teenager and she was having stress with my parents, you know, it happens all the time. Yeah. And so she said that it really helped her friend who she had just met at school, but this friend said um, that she now gets along better with her parents than she ever has before. And um, so my parents thought, okay, maybe that's an okay thing. And they just happened to say, you know, is it okay if we call her parents to, to find out? So they had the school directory, they called the parents and the parents said, where did you see our daughter? And, you know, my, my parents said, I'm sorry, what? And she said, we, you know, the mom said, we, we haven't seen her in, in six months. We don't know where oh she is. Oh, my gosh. And so she had, been, she had moved in with other cult members. And this, according to the cult, was her getting along better with her family by not talking to them at all. That actually even shocked my sister. <laughs> Just that so you can redefine what it means to get along with people. Uh, and having a good relationship means having no relationship. And um, that was enough to kind of turn the tide. Wow. That is absolutely insane. I mean, was she considered a missing person, the friend? Like, or they just realized that the daughter had moved out or... Well, the daughter had said, you know, you've never, suddenly she turned on them because of the influence of the group. You never loved me. You didn't care about me. You have been abusive and neglectful. And they didn't know where any of this was coming from. Uh, I'm now going to live with people who really care about me. So they knew that she was still around and alive. And every once in a while, there'd be a sighting of her. Um, 
And so they didn't think that, you know, something terrible had happened. They just didn't know where she was. And um, if my parents hadn't called, they wouldn't have found out that the truth was actually the opposite of what they were told. Um, and it was very alarming. Yeah, I c- can't even imagine. So I listened to um, your episode with um, Emily and Jen. And one question that Emily asked, which I thought was really interesting, was like regarding kind of the how cults begin. Like, do you, do you think that cult leaders go out knowing that they are about to start a cult or do you think it happens more organically and then turns in, in snowballs into something much larger? Mm. So um, I think it's both because there are, for the most part, there are people who go out and think that they have the answers or want to come across like they have all the answers. And usually these are people who don't have actual life skills Um, They don't have a day job. They just have learned a lot of psychology and a lot of social psychology and techniques of influence. And they, through, you know, self-aggrandizement or just needing to feed their ego, they, you know, now will set up a website or whatever, start putting out YouTube videos and get a following. And uh, then those are the ones who are very purposeful about starting to, Um, really develop something where they get to be the leader of their own cult. Um, What happens for a lot of people though, oh, and also with that, just keeping with that, there are people who are involved in a cult who have learned the techniques, who have observed the leader to see how they do it. Then they have a sense that they can do it better Mm. or they can make more money or they could get more of a following or they're tired of being like the number two person in the group and they've been waiting for their chance to be the leader. So they start a splinter group, which happens with a lot of organizations. So sometimes when people will tell me, you know, have you heard of such and such group? And I might not have, and they think that's a good sign that I haven't heard of it. It doesn't mean that it's not a cult. It could be that it's just an offshoot and they're doing the exact same things, but it's just called something else. So, um, so that's, those are the people who go out and they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Other people, I think, will sometimes want to be instructors, teachers, something, um, um, you know, want to be leaders of any sort, whether it's religious or psychological or political or whatever, and find that people really listen to them and people do what they say. And they seem to have this gift of gab and they also. Um, have this natural charismatic way about them and it can sometimes play with their head and they can get a little more kind of full of themselves and sometimes a little more dangerous because of that and abusive and take advantage of their power. Um, So they didn't start out to be cult leaders, but found that their skill (laughs) set matches so well that it just became a cult. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I think at least from a, observing um or more so you know listening to podcasts about cults and watching documentaries um and then specifically focusing on the cult leader i see so many parallels between those types of uh quote-unquote skill sets and traits of a narcissist because Mm 
that oh, yeah. feeling of grandiosity. I don't know if grandiosity is a word, but being grandiose. It is and, definitely a word, and you're right. And, uh -huh. and needing to feel in power, needing um, to be looked up to, and gift of the gab, as you said, you know, charming. I feel like are all cult leaders narcissists, or like for the majority, would you say? The majority are. Yeah. And I think that's well said because not all of them are. There are some who really um, are delusional and they bring people into their delusion. That that happened with this group um, that people heard about a while ago, Heaven's Gate. And, you, might, mm -hmm. you know, there was recently a show about it again. And I did an episode on my podcast about it just because I remember the families. I mean, I remember when it happened. So, and I remember talking to some of the families who lost their loved ones there where the leader really was this sad and delusional person um, or the leaders at one time, there was a male and female leader. She passed away and then he took over. Um, but he drew people into his psychosis, like, he was like, yes, the mothership is coming behind the comet and, you know, and he drew people in who have that either that kind of thinking or that psychological issue or fragility. And, you know, there's a there's a diagnosis called folia du, which is shared psychosis. And so I think some cults are just a picture of shared psychosis where it's like contagious. Um, but besides those, which is a much smaller number, they can still be dangerous, like with Heaven's Gate, where everyone died. Uh, so I still watch them. Um, most cult leaders are narcissists, and that's why now in my practice, I not only work with, I mean, I work with general clients too, um, but, I, but of my cult clients, I not only work with people who have been involved in cults or families who are trying to help their loved ones break free in some way, um, I work with people who are or have been in relationships with narcissists because mm -hmm. the outcome is almost identical, the after effects and the personality, the grandiosity, the charm, the outward persona that doesn't at all match what happens behind closed doors. Um, the, the person who needs to be the most fill in the blank, the most important, the smartest, uh, feels threatened by anyone even getting close to seeming as omnipotent or as omniscient as they are, you know, and has, has this fragile ego that they overcompensate for by being all that. And it's really tough. Wow. Before I ask a few questions about, you know, that specific type of narcissistic cult leader, what was the word you said before where shared psychosis yeah, it's a diagnosis called folie à deux, like the folly of two. It's French. So it's, and by two, it could be two or more. Mm -hmm. And it's a shared psychosis so that there are people who will sometimes um, be open to that way of thinking um, just in their life that they're open to kind of magical thinking. And they come across someone who is so sure that something is happening, like that a portal is going to be opening to another dimension or, or that the end of the world is coming, um, which is happening with a lot of kind of Armageddon style groups that we're seeing now. 
uh, and conspiratorial thinking and mm -hmm. QAnon and, 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 and it draws people in to what just looks like a whole group of people who are acting in a psychotic way. It doesn't mean that they are necessarily psychotic, um, but they have adopted those kinds of ways of thinking and looking at the world while they're in connection with the person in charge. Wow. So it, is it chemical? Like, how does that work? For some people, it's chemical when they really do have, you know, the, the brain capacity to really have psychosis. That is definitely chemical. For others, it's chemical in a different way. It's um, a dopamine rush. There oh, okay. is something that feels very much like a drug. Like, oh, I have the answer. And, oh, this, this person really gets me. And, and is, I'm now able to be among my people. And there's usually this fervor that goes along with it that also is like a dopamine rush. And so it, it connects with the brain very similar to um, the way an addict's brain is triggered. Got it. Wow, that is fascinating. So kind of going back to, um, you know, the similarities between cult leader, like a cult leader's approach and a narcissist's approach, which I guess is one and the same. Um, I think that like one of the, one of the signs, I guess, of a narcissist or like one aspect of narcissistic behavior is kind of going after empaths and people who are struggling, mm -hmm. um, whether that be with their mental health, body image, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what's so fascinating about the Nixium cult is yeah. that it was under the guise of a self-help group, basically, and something um, that would heal you. Yeah. And so for context and a little bit of a backstory, this I'll try to, you know, give a a summary slash like a spark notes <laughs> guide of my experience. But basically, so back in 2000, 2011, um, I, w I went to the, like a boarding school in Delaware and we would have guest speakers. And um, I had, or one of the guest speakers who came was this man named Mark Elliott. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he gave this incredible speech about his experience with Tourette syndrome. Um, and, and I actually didn't go to the lecture because I have Tourette syndrome and it's something that's really just given me so much shame like even now I like am having like trouble saying this out loud because I it's the one thing in my life I don't like I talk about anxiety and depression and my eating mm -hmm. disorder but talking about this is like almost traumatic just because of the amount of times that I was bullied when I was younger and mm. asked yeah. questions um so when I found out that there was here this you know this guy was coming to um <laughs> to my school to speak about Tourette's. So I was like, um, I'm going to play sick and I <laughs> right, stayed in my exactly. dorm, right. but I ended up yeah. like a lot. It was live streamed or something rather, I guess maybe not live streamed technology. wasn't that great at the time, but, but I, was, I started it. researching him. Yeah. yeah. Right. And 
I thought he was so cool. And I thought like, wow, this guy really turned his life around. He then wrote a book. My parents got me the book signed by him for Christmas. Um, and so I always knew about him. And then fast forward to my sophomore year of college. So in 2016, I randomly like I was honest I don't remember why maybe I they gave the book later I don't really remember the exact chronological order of all of this but I was on his website and it was like contact me and so I just wrote like hi Mark I just oh I also wrote my college essay on this <laughs> so uh-huh. I was like hi Mark like just wanted to say like thank you um you know your story really inspired me I actually like wrote my college essay on how much your speech um, impacted me and blah, 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 blah. And a couple days later, I receive a, like a phone call and it's, hi Zoe, this is Mark Elliott. Like got your message, um, would love to connect. So I'm over the moon. I'm like texting my family. Oh my God, Mark Elliott just called me. Like he wants to connect. Like I was literally looking through my old emails the other day and they're like, this is so exciting. Wow. Like go Zoe. Um, and so we set aside time for a Skype session mm-hmm. and in the Skype session, he's, you know, tell he, we were like talking and then he said, you know, this really wouldn't have been possible if it weren't for this executive success program, like healing my Tourette's. And I was like, huh, like that's kind of weird. Like when he back in 2011, you never spoke about that. He said it was just right. like he still managed them. He's mm-hmm. like, no, like this program healed me. Like I don't have because again, back in 2011, he said, you know, I still have to suppress the ticks. Um, it's still a daily battle. Then however, five years later, he's saying, nope, I'm completely healed. Nothing. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And he's like, you know, like it would be a great thing for you to consider. So I said, okay, I'll ask my parents. And parents were like, okay, well, let's learn about it. So then I had another Skype call with my parents and Mark Elliott. And he's going through the entire ESP, um, explaining what it is, like explaining the success stories he had and of others. Mm-hmm. And my parents, he even laid out the price, which was like a some ridiculous price. But my parents are incredible and would do literally anything to, you know, erase, ironically, the trauma of that I experienced because of my Tourette's. So Mm -hmm. they were fully on board. Mm -hmm. And then the only caveat was that it would I would have had to miss school. Mm -hmm. And I was like, is there any way to, you know, do this online? Is there any way to do this? And they're like, no, no, no. Like, you have to come here. Um, like school can wait, you know, this is going to be change your life, the whole, all of that. And then, you know, after a lot of back and forth and seriously considering doing this program, ultimately I said, you know, like not the time. Then fast forward to, I guess, August or whenever this was all released, I get a call from my mom saying, you will not believe who I just saw in this documentary. And it's none other than Mark Elliott. So that is my experience. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I guess, 
so for listeners who don't really know much about this cult, I was hoping you could kind of explain from a psychological perspective about, you know, Keith Rainier and his whole mission with this horrible, horrible organization. Yeah. So I can try to explain it. It's a, there's a lot to it. So I'll Mm -hmm. try to keep it short, but I just want to say first that it's very devastating for a lot of people who are given this impression that they're going to have something cured and then to not have it happen. It's, it's this emotional roller coaster. No one should have to go on. And so I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Thank you. Um, so it, one of the things that actually, for lack of a better professional term, um, pisses me off <laughs> about these groups uh, is that so many promises are made. And I think the people who make the promise really believe it. I don't think that Mark was lying to. I think he really believed that it had helped him in that way. And it may have helped a bit, but so many, so many promises are made of cure-alls um, that that the leader itself or himself or herself doesn't actually usually believe are true. They just convince the people who are in it that it's possible, and then they recruit other people, and they're very convincing because they believe in it. Um, anyway. So um, Keith Ranieri is uh, in jail and for a long, long, long time. And that was fairly recent. And it was um, one, of, one of the only times actually that a cult leader has actually had to deal with the law not being on their side. Usually um, when people get involved in cults and they're harmed by them, um, the law protects the cult more than it protects the victims because they can cry religious persecution or they can say, well, this person signed forms that, you know, kind of waive their rights or wow. their legal rights or their, they signed a non-disclosure agreement so they shouldn't even be talking about it. So, you know, it, it, it boomerangs and hits the victims in the face when they go after cults le- legally a lot of the time, which is the, such a miscarriage of justice. Uh, and so clearly things need to be revamped within our legal system. So it was quite a victory for him to go to jail. Um, you know, he's someone who is a businessman and he was making a lot of money. And then when, when he stopped making money doing, you know, selling different products or selling different ideas or selling self-help or selling and being able like the executive success programs to get past your blockages and, and move through life in a way that's stronger and make, um, good decisions, and that there was some validity to some of the teachings because they weren't they weren't from him. He just sort of culled information from different people and repackaged it. Um, I think that uh, similar to what I was saying before, I think you know he had always had as we've now had interviews even with his parents. Um, he always had traits where uh, he seemed narcissistic. His father was quoted as saying that when he was a teenager he had multiple girlfriends at the same time and each of the girlfriends he would tell that he loved them and they were the only ones who he loved and they were so special to him and the only the only and then they'd hear him on the phone a half an hour later with the next person you're the only 
So they knew that he was a player and they knew that he was good at manipulation and mm. he didn't mind doing it to people. Um, so he then realized that he was really good at teaching and at motivating and at being charismatic. And so he kind of upped the ante and he got people to move in together and uh, people then who were very wealthy, who could help to bankroll him. And, and now then also pay a lot of his legal fees uh, eventually and to, and to intimidate um, people who were trying to take him down because they'd been hurt by him and they could legally intimidate them. So he's someone who is pathological. I mean, he, he is misogynistic and he um, is cruel and he, there's a sadistic part of him where he doesn't mind causing people pain. It, 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 you know, his persona is so soft-spoken and he seems so reasonable and kind of smiley and you see it in videotapes of him. Um, but then he also is kissing all the women on the lips who, and some of the men too, who are lining up after one of his teachings and lining up to get a hug from him and, and a kiss. And when you just keep him, keep seeing him kissing everyone on the lips, on the lips, on the lips, you're thinking, okay, this is making me so uncomfortable just watching it. And yeah. you know, what is going on here? I think he had he, his important mission, I think, was not only to break down people's boundaries, but to test everyone to see what he could get them to do just because he told them to, and to, to propel his ego forward. So he developed, you know, DOS, you know, these women who eventually were branded and horrific, horrific scenes he created. And I think if he hadn't gone to jail, he would have just kept intensifying the, the sadism, basically. Yeah. I don't know what he would have done next, but I, I hate to even think about it. Wow. I mean, it's so alarming to think that there are people who benefit from other suffering like that out in the world. And I think, as you mentioned, like what's what's especially disheartening about something like this is that the part of the lure to this specific group was the healing and the self-help aspect mm -hmm. and people going in thinking that, you know, they're going to come out, come out of it being better and stronger. Mm -hmm. When in reality, mm -hmm. it's like, com it's complete gaslighting. Like, yeah. And it's, it just, yeah, it's scary to think like, that that exists but I don't know what if that what's like scary to that or the fact that as you mentioned now you're working with you know people who got out of a, a relationship with a narcissist or are it's currently in mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. it's just sad to think that this happens daily for regular like people not in a cult yeah right so I guess yeah. my my next question is what advice would you give to someone on how to recognize that they were experience this, experiencing this type of emotional manipulation, whether it be they were being recruited into a cult or they were they're with mm -hmm. a toxic partner. Right. 
So one of the things you want to look for is if, first of all, if your boundaries are being crossed, meaning uh, you, um, you don't get to say no. If you say no, then that, that means that, you know, um, you're showing your weakness or in some Bible-based cults, that's the devil or whatever they'll use to get you to, to just not be able to uphold any boundary physically or emotionally. You also want to be careful um, about being pushed that, you know, narcissists will push you to do whatever they say. Cult leaders will push you and you don't have time to sit back and think like, do I even want to be doing this? Is this good for me? Is it healthy? You don't have time to take away, do research uh, to, to find out if other people have had a problem with that person or with that group. Um, you have to, you have to make a decision right away and they'll be so charming. They'll also make you feel like you'd be making a huge mistake by saying no to them because you will feel, or they'll work the angle where you feel specially chosen for this mm -hmm. or special that you found it or found the group or found them. Um, what you want to, to notice too, is that very often when I talk to people and now it's been over like a thousand people I've worked with who have been in these kinds of situations, there was always a something, there was a sign, there was a tell, there was a feeling that they got right away that they were taught to ignore by the person who was controlling them. You know, if you are unhappy about what I'm saying, or if you think I'm too something, uh, or if you're uncomfortable, that's just your ego getting in the way, or that's, you know, your doubt and you have to get rid of doubt um, because that's why you haven't achieved anything in your life. So you learn how to gaslight yourself. And, and so I think the other thing is that when, when people like narcissistic partners and cult leaders start to divide and conquer, they start to tell you that anyone who is not in support of you being involved in this is against you. Mm -hmm. is doesn't love you doesn't care about you doesn't support you um then and you really need to rethink those relationships and if you want to stay in contact with those people i mean clearly uh, a narcissist is not going to want you to continue having a relationship uh with anyone who might make you doubt the this person or criticize them because their ego won't be able to handle it so instead they want you to turn the doubt around and have it directed at the person who is telling you, I don't know if this is so safe for you. Um, so if you're starting to suddenly be made to feel suspicious of or unloved by or unsupported by the people who you felt that way just a week ago, then you also want to be very, very cautious. Um, and I think also if you feel like you're being put on a roller coaster, people will often tell me, with a first kind of cult meeting, they'll be pushed to do something or to, or to reveal something about themselves that's very um, personal and it's right away. They have to reveal and it's uncomfortable and then they're praised for doing it. So they're kind of mm, put in this mode of discomfort and then released from it. And then they feel like they've had this breakthrough moment, but no, they were just pushed and made to feel like they had to do this and then praised for doing it. A narcissist will kind of do the same thing. A lot of people who will say they had a date with someone and afterwards they 
felt kind of insulted, but also yeah. special at the same time because a narcissist will dig, will make a comment, but then make you feel like specially, mm, like they could be with anyone, but they're choosing to be with you. And so just sort of already being set off kilter, you want to you wanna see that as a sign that someone is already getting into your head. Yeah. I mean, even just reflecting on my own experience, it, it was wild because when all this came out, I started just remembering everything. And kind of as you said, like, I, I remember Mark saying, you know, if you're he he like feeling any hesitation at all, that's just because, you know, you're still in this, you know, you're limited mindset and you're still right. doubting yourself mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it, it's because you're still insecure about the Tourette's, which was all true. Like <laughs> that's the, that's the scary and sad part was that it was like, he was use it like using my my insecurities as leverage because everything he was mm -hmm. saying was true mm -hmm. but he was using it in a way to further hurt whether he was doing it you know who knows maliciously or not but like as you exactly as you said like going to the the point of making me doubt myself and mm -hmm. even though I was already that it didn't help that like that was right about when I was like diagnosed with depression and all of this stuff so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's scary thinking that like if I had probably if the choice had been up to me and if there was no cost involved I probably would have ended up going to this thing yeah. And you bring up a good point because you said it was just when you were diagnosed with depression. And a lot of people will ask me what kind of person gets involved in a cult night. And it can be a what, but it's also a when question. Mm -hmm. It's very often the timing that makes people open to it because they were just given a diagnosis or they just went through a really hard time. And, and so a lot of people will say a year before I wouldn't have been open to it or a year after or whatever else. After I went on medication, I wasn't going to be open to it. But right then, yeah, I was ripe for it. Yes, he was right about addressing your hesitation and he was probably right about some of the reasons, but what's also true about hesitation is that's your inner voice. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be with anyone who tells you to immediately ignore it or, or somehow demonizes it or diagnoses it as something negative because it could be that you were having doubts because of your own worry about addressing this or not wanting to have false hope and whatever else. But also there was probably something that you were picking up on that it, where it just seemed like, mm, yeah, I don't like, know. This is what he said five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Definitely. So, so when, when you're involved with something healthy, like if I have a first session with someone, let's say, and I won't automatically assume that now I have them as my client after the session, I'll say, you know, why don't you just think about the session, think about if it was the right match, if you felt comfortable, and if so, then you know where to find me, you can make a second appointment or not. But to keep the person being empowered throughout the process, I want people to hear their voice. Yeah. And I want people, if they're worried about therapy and they have questions for me, ask me. But if it is that they just really didn't think I was the right fit, I'm not gonna tell them, oh, that's your, 
you know, that's your negativity getting in your way of blah, 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 right? Because yeah. I want to respect the fact that they're talk, they're telling themselves something and I'm trying to, I, I want to honor that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a really important thing. Also, you know, it's hard because when people recruit you, you don't know they're recruiting you. You think they're sharing this gift that they receive and they're giving it to you. Mm, but he got points for the amount of people that he recruited. So while he was offering something to you, by getting, getting you in, you were going to be doing something for him. So crazy. I guess. So I always end my episodes with a few questions unrelated to cults, um, <laughs> unrelated to like most, or I guess there's always an element of psychology that kind of makes its way mm -hmm. in. But okay. The first question is, what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Hmm. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that's happened to me, uh, well, there are a number of things, but um, early on in my career, I was harassed by Scientology. And it has since happened a number of times. They're now up to it again. Uh, and I've had to dig deep about if I want to continue doing this work because that is what they do. You know, they, they had, or they have, they say they don't have it anymore. This policy called fair game policy where you become fair game and they will try to destroy you and your reputation and they'll destroy you financially. It was all written in their documents about how to, how to, um, implement this fair game policy. And so they are a thorn in the side of people who do this work. And um, so I've had to hear my father's voice, who unfortunately passed when I was 22. He was a wonderful, wonderful person. But I remember him just saying, you can't let the bullies win. And even though there are times that it has, you know, drained my funds and drained my patience and sometimes made me want to stay home for a few days if it's gotten really bad, I just, I, I try to remember that, that there are people out there being injured by this group and I can't, I feel like I can't let them down and I can't let the bullies win. Yeah. My next question, and you might've just said it, is do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Um, yeah. Um, I think, um, I might get this quote wrong. But um, it's by Alice Walker, and it's that um, um, people will often lose their power by thinking they don't have any. Like and that. it's a really, it's an interesting thing because when you are convinced you don't have it or you feel like it's been taken away or you signed it away or you signed up for an abusive relationship because you just did or you signed the marriage contract with someone then you think you don't have power because you gave it over, but you always have your power. You mm -hmm. can always reclaim it and you actually always had it. I love that. What do you love most about yourself? Hmm. Um, I know this might seem like a weird answer to this question, but I think my humility, which is funny to say like, I love, uh, I love my yeah. humility. <laughs> um, Still to this day, people will call me, oh, you're a cult expert and nationally recognized, internationally recognized, blah, blah, blah. And people will come to me and wait months to come talk to me. And after they talk to me, I think, I don't know if I help them enough. 
I don't know if I gave them exactly what they needed and maybe they needed, maybe they should have gone to someone who's been doing this work for a little while longer. And like, I, it keeps me learning and growing and self-assessing and, um, and sometimes wondering if um, I did enough and hoping that I did, but not, not sort of sitting back and going, Oh, I know I, you know, help them more than anyone else. It's, there's always this, you know, I wonder if that was sort of the perfect thing or if it missed the mark. So I, 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 I take that as a motivator for myself just to be open to learning. And actually I learn a lot from my clients. I learn a lot from yeah. them. I get a lot of wisdom from the people who have really been through, they've, they've had to make their way through the fire mm-hmm. and how they've done that. And so I think that I, it, it used to give me a lot of insecurity because people would come to see me and I'd be sitting, I'd be thinking in my head, why are they talking to me? Like, why, how, I can't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Uh, especially when I was young, when I was a new therapist and I'm 22 and someone's asking me for something that is about life wisdom. And I'm like, honey, you know, like I got my braces off five years ago, you know? <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but now um, I think I see it as a motivator where I, I replay, not to an obsessive degree, but just a kind of checking in with myself. Like, what can I do next time for that person that might feel even more helpful? Yeah, it's almost, almost like the complete opposite characteristic of a narcissistic uh, cult leader. Right, and, and actually that's what propelled me for a while to be in a relationship with a narcissist, because you're right, they, they are, um, it's like a magnet. They go mm-hmm. right for the person who second guesses themselves yeah. and who is willing to take responsibility. I actually once <clears throat> was meeting with someone who was a narcissist who wanted to get some help with it because it was ruining all of his relationships. And I remember thinking this therapy is not going to last more than a few sessions. And it didn't because, yeah. you know, w- it was very nice that he attempted <laughs> to want to change. Uh, but I thought eh, it's not, it's not going to happen because he's going to get mad that I'm saying something and he didn't want to hear it. Um, but he said to me, he tests people right away and I'll never forget this. Um, he said that he will sometimes, if he's potentially attracted to someone or if he's lonely, he's looking for a relationship, he will purposely physically bump into that person to see if they apologize first. And the, and if, if they, if they say, what'd you do? How, you know, like, excuse you or something he knows they're not going to be the right match for him because he can't take control. And if a person gets bumped into and they apologize, like, oh, I'm sorry, like, I must have been in your way. He goes, yep, that's my next person. That is wild. That, like, I have so many thoughts on that because it just makes me also, I mean, this is, I could go on, like, the longest tangent about, just how you know that disproportionately affects what like women tend to do that more mute themselves yes. and um yes. it's like that documentary uh missing misrepresentation yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i ca- i mean i constantly catch myself like so i'm sorry i have a question like why am i apologizing right uh, and things exactly like that. right i have to after i write a text or an email I have to go out and take out the apologies and the word just 
Mm-hmm. I say just all the time. I just, I just had a question, right? Just, I, you know, if you have a sec, I just, I'm hoping that it's like, mm, would you mind if I bother you? As opposed to, I'm actually giving you information you were asking for. <laughs> Why am I so apologetic? Like I'm getting in the way of your life. But yeah. I think women are so acculturated to behave this way and it makes us targets. Wow. That is absolutely mind blowing. My last question, which is the name of the podcast, is how do you find solace in the city? Because it seems like you must go through a lot and take on a lot. um, And you've lived in multiple large cities. So what Mm -hmm. brings you peace? Um, What brings me peace is um, uh, working hard to stay in the moment. And I know that that is, that's a line that's been used a lot, but I remember thinking I, I can get lost in my head because I have, you know, like I might meet, meet with 30 or 40 people a week and doing the podcast and doing other people's podcasts and, 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 um, I will sometimes have to say, wait, I'm actually sitting in a room. One of my kids is hanging with me. I have a dog on my lap. I, you know, I'm healthy. Life is okay. I'm enjoying the weather. I live in LA and I, I bring myself into the present, get out of my head and notice what's happening around me and take it in. That gives me solace. I love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast. Like I've learned so much in these 50 minutes. Um, where can my, uh, like followers and listeners, learn more about you. Um, I don't know, donate to any organizations that help support survivors of cults or anything you're passionate about. Plug anything. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I, I think, well, first of all, people can find me. um, They can email me at Bernstein LMFT, which is my license at Gmail or at the indoctrination show at Gmail at gmail.com. Um, you can support the podcast on Patreon if you've gotten something from it or if you want to keep it going. I pay for it out of pocket, which is not always easy, I have to admit, but I want to keep it going. Um, and um, <clears throat> my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com. And to give to organizations that are human rights organizations um, that I, I care about, you know, human rights campaign and I care about Southern Poverty Law Center. And also specifically, I'm on the board of something called the International Cultic Studies Association. And they help people worldwide who are stuck in, in uh, horrible situations and, um, and are really needing resources and needing help. And also for people who are in what we call these one-on-one cults with these malignant narcissists and don't know how to break free. So I think those are good places to to support what I see as really good work. Amazing. Well, thank you again and bye everyone.